Have you ever wanted to have a Labradoodle join your family? Well, now's the time. Dutch Creek Retrievers, a local Central Valley breeder of hunting and companion retrievers, now has a litter of Labradoodles that will be ready for their forever homes on Saturday and Sunday, April 8th and April 9th. Like most Labrador Retrievers and standard poodles, the lovable Labradoodle is generally friendly, energetic, and good with families and children. They often display an affinity for water, and they have strong swimming abilities. Retrieving is in their blood, and these pups will make excellent hunters or that lifelong companion that will steal your heart. For info, contact Gene at 209-622-5960 or email gene at dutchcreekfarm.com. That's 209-622-5960 or gene at dutchcreekfarm.com. Mention the Dave Bowman Show or Podcast 99 and receive prepaid lifelong recovery with AKC Reunite Lost Pet Recovery Service. That's a $24.95 value just for listening to the Dave Bowman Show and Podcast 99. Remember, that's gene at 209-622-5960 or email gene at dutchcreekfarm.com. We need the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. Gentlemen of the Congress, I have called the Congress into extraordinary session because there are serious, very serious choices of policy to be made, and made immediately, which it was neither right nor constitutionally permissible that I should assume the responsibility of making. On the 3rd of February last, I officially laid before you the extraordinary announcement of the Imperial German government that on and after the first day of February it was its purpose to put aside all restraints of law or of humanity and use its submarines to sink every vessel that sought to approach either the ports of Great Britain and Ireland or the western coasts of Europe or any of the ports controlled by the enemies of Germany within the Mediterranean. Among the many objects to which a wise and free people find it necessary to direct their attention, that of providing for their safety seems to be the first. The safety of the people, doubtless, has a relation to a great variety of circumstances and considerations, and consequently affords great latitude to those who wish to define it precisely and comprehensively. Those are the words of John Jay, as he writes in the Federalist Papers, John Jay didn't write a lot of the Federalist Papers, but he did write some of the more important ones, I think, that don't get 
perhaps as much play as they should be. It's often true that if you ask any politician, I don't really care what level you ask them at, city, state, county, federal, if you ask them what the primary purpose of government is, they almost all say public safety, public safety, public safety. This has become kind of the mantra, if you will, of, of you know, public officials. We, we provide for the public safety. Uh, what they actually do is something completely different, but uh, this is what they claim uh, is after this. This is really the birth of this, as John Jay writes in Federalist Three about uh, providing for the safety of the people of the United States. But there's something else here that he is into that is applicable today, April 6th, as we talk about uh, the ideas that were being argued during the ratification process. The Federalist Letters, of course, uh, would become integral to that part. They would become uh, really the argument for the Constitution of the United States. And they would be of particular interest to us all these years later because uh, we look at these, I'm sorry, I'm moving papers around here because I'm trying to get stuff into place, but uh, these are what we look back to to get an idea of what the Federalists particularly thought about these issues. John Jay, of course, was one of the leading Federalists of the day, but he was, however, not as involved in the Federalist Papers as he originally had planned to be. He ended up only writing, I think it's five of them, three of them uh, really in a row, two, three, and four, which deal with one of the biggest issues that is involved with the, with, with the Constitution, but one of the ones we pay the least attention to today. At its root core, the purpose of the Constitution, as argued by Jay, as argued by Madison and Hamilton and many, many others, the root core of the reason for the Constitution was to provide for union, to unite the country into one nation. The problems that they were facing uh, were legion, and we've talked a great deal uh, at length about some of the states and some of the ways that they were were handling things. We're still going to talk about Rhode Island uh, and their monetary systems. Uh, We've talked about Virginia and the fact that Virginia, of all of the 13 states uh, that existed at that time, really the only one that realistically probably could have gone on its own way and been marginally successful as an independent nation. Uh, We saw during the convention, uh, Delaware threatening to bring in uh, outside influences, outside allies, as it were, uh, to restore that. And this was a great fear. I mean, we we look at this today, and we look at some of the anti-federalist arguments, and, and, and we don't grasp the concept that it was a very realistic idea in 1788 that England, which had forts and troops on our borders, in, some of which they were supposed to have evacuated already, but hadn't because we had not kept our end of the Treaty of of Ghent, uh, there was a very realistic possibility that England could reinvade. There was a very realistic possibility that France, ostensibly our ally, but boy, just unstable as all get out, might decide to do the same thing. We competed with them in commerce. We competed with them in, in all kinds of things. And remember, all three of these now, the United States, France, and England, will have interests in the new world. France really wants to recover its interests. England wants to maintain its interests. Even Spain, to a lesser degree, has 
interests, uh, particularly down in Florida and that area is there. The idea of having foreign powers that are actually powerful is haunting at this point as, as, as April 6, 1788 rolls around. It's haunting. And it's John Jay who puts pen to paper and he talks about in three papers, two, three, and four, the need for unity, the, the reasons why the country needs to be united together as one. Now, we'll leave it to Hamilton to talk about the economic advantages of union. Uh, we'll leave it to Madison to talk about the legislative advantages and the, the philosophical advantages of that. But it's John Jay who really expresses and really pounds on the idea that there are military advantages to being a United States. He outlines the idea here that wars are an almost an unnecessary evil of the world. They happen, uh, as he puts it, almost uh, constantly. And he even gets into a little bit of the descriptions to why they happen, which is, is, is kind of interesting when he talks about it because he, uh, he talks about the fact that uh, so many of these wars are simply egos more than anything else. It is too true, he writes, however disgraceful it might be to human nature, that nations in general will make war whenever they have a prospect of getting something by it or anything by it. Nay, absolute monarchs will often make war when their nations are to get nothing by it, but for the purposes and objects merely personal, such as thirst for military glory, revenge for objects merely personal, such as thirst, I already read that, uh, personal affronts, ambitions, private compacts to aggrandize or support their particular families or partisans. These and a variety of other motives, which affect only the mind of the sovereign, often lead to him to engage in wars not sanctified by justice or by the voice or the interests of his people. He's absolutely right when he talks about the way wars are fought, particularly in that era, and even, as we're going to see in just a moment, even into the modern era, as it were. These ideas of a single person, a single monarch, being able to start something simply because he's upset about something or offended by something or mad about something is a grave concern. But Jay's bigger concern here is not so much that these foreign powers are going to start wars. He is literally afraid that a disunited states either 13 countries or two or three confederacies or, or however it ends up working out, might find themselves, as he puts it, starting wars just because. It's a whole lot easier for Georgia to start a war than it is for the United States to start a war. And we've actually already seen this. One of the reasons why Georgia ratified so quickly was that they were having problems with the Native Americans on their borders the Spanish, and, and they were concerned that they were going to end up fighting wars against these people, and they didn't want to do it alone. And they figured, well, if we ratify the Constitution, then everybody will be down here fighting with us, and we won't have to. And, of course, that was part of the argument against it was, well, what if Georgia starts a war and we have to go support them? Rhode Island seemed as likely as anyone to start shooting not just at each other, but, but anybody that, that uh, told them how to do anything. 
Virginia had issues with the navigation of the Mississippi River. Remember, Kentucky at this point, they're called the Kentucky counties. Uh, They will eventually be a state. They're trying to be a state, but right now they're really Virginia. Uh, Virginia, by the way, is also uh, in charge of all the Northwest Territories, uh, what, what will eventually become Ohio, Illinois, all that area, Indiana. Virginia's concerned about navigation of rivers, and really, are we going to end up shooting at the Spanish because they won't let us go up and down the river to Nolens? And if Virginia ends up doing that, does New Hampshire have to go with them? What if New Hampshire decides to invade Canada? Now, these things seem ridiculous to us. We look at this now today, 229 years later, and we go, that's absurd. That would never happen. But it was a different world in 1788, and you need to keep that in mind. It was not seen the same way. And war, as destructive as it was, was nothing like it would become later on. It was, war could be really, you know, I mean, obviously there was a lot of death and destruction. But even on that scale, it wasn't like it is now, or even as it would become uh, by 1860 and into the uh, the 20th century. It was not something to be, and I almost hate to say this because it's going to come out wrong, it wasn't something to be feared the way war is now. War is feared now. People are afraid to go to war because they, they recognize the destruction of it. I Star Trek, you know, the episode where they go to the Amini R7 and they, they've got this computer war going on and Kirk says, nope, nope, you want a war? You're going to fight a real war. And they're all appalled. They're like, oh, what the death, destruction, we've cleaned all that up. And Kirk's like, well, that's what war is. You have to be afraid of it. That's how you stop it. That's how you prevent it. Well, in 1788, it wasn't quite that way. Monarchs didn't look at their people and go, well, I have a responsibility to protect my people. I have a responsibility to carry out what I feel is my God-given right to do. And Jay talks about the fact that American people, free people, want to maintain their safety above all else. And he argues that that's easier to do united than it would be to do separated. And he's, he's absolutely correct. I think it's fascinating because he talks a great deal about these hostilities from beyond. He talks a little bit about hostilities inside, but he also talks about the fact that we don't know what the future holds. As a union, we'll be able to handle whatever circumstances might, whatever foreign enemy might attack us, might threaten us in the future, we'll be able to handle. We don't even know what it might be, he says, which is fascinating to me because, again, we keep getting into this argument about, well, the framers wrote through Constitution 1788. It didn't apply. They didn't see anything for it. Of course they did. They talked a great deal about exigent circumstances and things, exigencies that they had no idea what would be. But we're building a system that will allow you to remain safe, safe and unified, even in the face of those exigencies. The most important concern that Jay had and I think it's the one that he makes very clear here, is that these monarchs, King George, King George III, we as Americans, we think of him very, very poorly. We really do. We we judge him as the tyrant King George, uh, and and we, we have this image of King George the way he is. History, of course, is much different than that. 
in all of his reign, the American Revolution was a it was an important event, but it wasn't the biggest event in his reign. He had some issues. He was probably mentally ill. There's a wonderful movie called The Madness of King George. If you haven't seen it, you should, you should look it up. Nigel Hathorne plays King George. But George III did a, a great deal to restore the monarchy to its glory in England. But he was still hammered, hamstrung by the constitutionality of the monarchy and how he had to work with those things. And one of the things King George did was he corrupted the political system by buying off people. He used the vast wealth of the English crown to pay off politicians to do what he wanted to do in order to start wars. There were a lot of people who didn't want to fight the American Revolution in England. They thought, they want to go, let them go. Not going to hurt us anymore. Fine. It was almost entirely King George's will that brought around the American Revolutionary War. Almost entirely. Had King George III listened to some of his wiser advisors, perhaps that break would have been more amicable, and who knows what the future would have held at that point. But one monarch's ego, one monarch's feeling that he had been slighted, led to that war and that devastation and that destruction. We we could see that around all of Europe in those eras, uh, the, the French, the, Ger- the Prussians, uh, the Dutch, the, the Spanish, so forth and so on. You can see all of that there. But at the end of the day, it was all because of a monarch's decision. And this is something that Jay really wants to get across to the American people. In a government that is united, theoretically, the best people will be chosen to lead it. The wisest, the calmest, the most level-headed of people will be chosen by the rest of the people to be in charge. In doing so, they will spread out the authority enough that no one man, no one person, will be able to decide that the United States has been offended and we must go to war. We must send our sons and daughters and treasure and talent into combat to be destroyed and to do destroying no one person will have that power. And this is very, very important to Jay. And it's very, very in, embedded in what he has to say in these three papers, two, three, and four, about how he wants unity and how he really, really wants to, you to understand that just because South Carolina gets offended doesn't mean the United States is going to go to war. And if one country, we're less likely to go to war. We're less likely to provoke a war. This is something really concerning. We're less likely to do something that will really piss somebody else off. More importantly, if we do find ourselves in a situation where war is imminent, an entire country has more impact, more, more gravitas than three or four confederacies or a state. He uses the example of Genoa in 17, or 1695 and how France embarrassed Genoa and forced them to, to basically kneel and ask for forgiveness. He said, you know, you can see that happening to South Carolina. You can see that happening to Virginia. But you can't see that happening to the United States, this giant of a country, this, this country that all of a sudden, you know, has meaning and, 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 and union and a purpose to it that this individual states might lack. It's, it's a fascinating look into the ideas that no one person should be able to take the country to war. The anti-federalists argue very strenuously that there's no 
there's no threat to the United States. There's no reason to worry about England. There's no reason to worry about France. I think they take things a little bit lightly. But like the isolationists of today, they tend to see things a little bit rose-colored. They don't really recognize the threats for what they are. Be that as it may, Jay's argument is very very persuasive. Again, he didn't write a lot of the papers, but he wrote some of the best ones. Uh, particularly these three are, are, are really strong arguments for this idea that the rest of the world may be run by tyrants and monarchs, but a nation like ours will be less likely to go to war and thus keep our people safe. We'll be less, we'll be more likely to avoid offending anybody else. We'll be more likely to stop. And, and to a degree, he's, he's kind of right. History will kind of bear him out a little bit. I mean, it won't, won't be, obviously we're not going to be perfect. We're going to have the war of 1812. We're going to have the, uh, the Barbary coast war. We're going to have the quasi war with Britain and France. Um, of course, we're going to have the Mexican American war. Uh, we're going to have the civil war, which really is unrelated to any of this, uh, in the sense of Jay, but it's about union. Are we going to have union or not? Are we going to be safe together or are we going to shoot at each other apart? Um, we have the, the Plains Wars after that, the Indians Wars, uh, the Spanish-American War. And eventually we get to the Great War in 1914. Imperial Germany is blamed primarily for starting World War I. Now, if you think about what Jay had written about the monarchs, uh, monarchs will often make war when their nations to get, are to get nothing by it for the purposes of Objects merely personal, such as thirsty thirst for military glory, revenge for personal affronts, ambition, private compacts. Here is John Jay writing in 1788, 1787, and you couldn't have written a more reasonable outline of the causes of World War I. Here you have all these monarchies, you have all these entangling alliances, you have a grave personal affront, a person that nobody likes, nobody cares about, everybody just wishes would go away, married to a woman nobody can stand amongst the monarchy, assassinated by an anarchist in a backwater country, city in a country that really has just been a pain in the butt from day one. And all of a sudden you have this aggrandizement, you have this this Kaiser who has been thirsting for military glory, Kaiser Wilhelm II was, you know, dressed in uniforms. Uh, he, he was very military. He's in a Navy. He wanted the Navy second to none. He was very military. He wanted military grandeur and military glory with none of the military skills that went with it. Uh, his son, the crown prince, would, would turn out to be a great general, but, but he himself lacked in a lot of those areas, but he thought in his head that he had all of this. And he encourages his friends down in Austria-Hungary, well, you've been affronted. You need to, you need to, uh, you need to reply. And, and all but urges Austria-Hungary to invade and punish Serbia. And of course, Serbia is allied with Russia. Russia's czar, king, is cousins with, with the Kaiser and with the king of England. Um, France is allied with Russia, so Russia declares war on Austria-Hungary for declaring war on Serbia. Germany declares, is allied with Austria-Hungary, so it declares war on Russia. France declares war on Germany. England is allied with all this. And eventually, you end up with this war to end all wars, this, this war that made all the wars before it look 
like child's play. A war where at one point of the war, 6,000 people were dying an hour. A war that saw hundreds upon thousands of men die to advance the front line 30 yards. Battles that went on for months where the dead would literally just be absorbed into the ground from the shell fire and the, the ground just being places where you can go today in France and in Europe and in Belgium where you can still see the damage done a hundred years later. A war unlike anything that had ever been seen before. And of course, along comes Germany with their submarines and they start sinking ships. They sank the Lusitania in 1915 and America gets upset. Hey, don't do that. Germany agrees. But then in 1917, as the war grinds on, it becomes, uh, it becomes very apparent to the Kaiser and his staff that they need these submarines to win the war. And so they re reinstitute unrestricted submarine warfare. And this infuriates America. And on April 2nd, as, as the nation builds into this war frenzy, the nation builds in, the, there's a significant peace movement, by the way. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson has just won re-election the previous November on the platform of, we're not going to get in the war. We're staying out of this. Okay, we're, we're out of it. But there's this movement, this belief that Germany has become so evil and so intolerant that it has to be defeated. And, and it's obvious that Britain and France can't do it by themselves. They certainly can't do it. They're going to have to have our help. And we've poured millions of dollars into it, but now we might have to pour something else into it. And there's almost this patriotic outbreak. There are speeches given where uh, people who are anti-war people say, look, it's, it's not our fight. It's in Europe. And, and there are th things are thrown at them. And the only way the Stanford University president gives one of these speeches, the only way he gets out of it is people start stinging the Star-Spangled Banner. And on April 2nd, 1917, Woodrow Wilson gives a speech in front of a joint session of Congress. It's a very interesting day. It's a rainy day. He's supposed to speak that morning, but Congress is up to its machinations, and he ends up not speaking until that evening. And it's a speech that if you read it today, it's important, but it's not. You, you, you won't read it the same way they heard it. When it was given, people were crying and cheering and standing up and waving flags and foaming at the mouth almost, ready to go to war. But Congress still wasn't convinced. There were still significant people in the Congress and the Senate, particularly, who were able to filibuster it. And it wasn't until four days later, on April 6th, today, 1917, 100 years ago today, that Congress voted to declare war on Germany. But the beauty in all of this, and the, the significant thing for us to keep in mind, is that up to that moment in time, Woodrow Wilson could have written executive orders and wanted to, to arm ships, could have sent troops, could have done a lot of things. But even Woodrow Wilson, the progressive that he was, recognized that it was not constitutionally permittable for him to just do that. It is not up to me. I can't do it, he said. I shouldn't do it, and I can't do it. It is constitutionally unpermissible for me to commit this nation war. It is up to you, the Congress of the United States. And whatever you thought of World War I, had you been there then, and who knows what I would have thought, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not sure. 
I know, I know we, uh, he called it the war to end all wars and a just war and uh, laid out the case for Germany. But uh, again, looking at all the historical facts, I, I don't know for certain when I look at World War I. I really don't. World War II is a lot easier, a lot easier to figure out. But World War I, it, it's, it's tough sometimes. But at the same time, the Germans didn't help themselves. And so you go into this whole thing. But the beauty in all of this is, despite all of that, John Jay looked forward and said, there will come a time when, there, when there's a threat that we don't even recognize. I can't even imagine today. But with union, we'll be able to solve that problem. No one man will be able to take us to war. If we're going to go to war, we're going to go for war for real, and we're going to do it right, and we're going to all be together with it. And Congress will decide that. And April 6, 1917, a hundred years ago tonight, nation voted to go to war, joined World War I. Many people would make the argument that that was the decisive factor in the defeat of Germany and the war to end all wars and hopefully solve all of those things. Of course, we know history didn't work out all that way. But for our purposes today, as John Jay writes Federalist 2, 3, and 4, it's important to remember that he understood, and because of that, we understand, that no one person should be able to do that. Why? Because that's what monarchs like Kaiser Wilhelm did, and they bring destruction rather than glory. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.